So at the end of that one minute story, when we coach them to say enough about me, what's going on in your world, one of two things happens. If the story was successful, they open up, start talking freely, and all their discovery resistance has been removed. If the story didn't work, they fold their arms and say, what do you want to know? It's binary, it's one of the two. Hi friends, welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now that was Mike Bosworth. Now Mike's the author of the classic book I think everyone's heard of called Solution Selling. And in this conversation, Mike and I talk about how to coach sellers to master creating trust and emotional connection in conversations with your buyers. We talk about the importance of relationships in sales and why the idea of relationships, the very idea of relationships, makes so many sellers so uncomfortable, which is just kind of crazy when you think about it. We're also going to dig into how to form the emotional connections that drive sales forward. And we also spend some time talking about why the small things matter so much in sales. It's a fun conversation, all this and much, much more. Before we get to Mike, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Mike Bosworth, welcome back to the show. I'm happy to be here with you, Andy. It's good to talk to you again. So how's life up in the Orcas Islands? Well, it's uh, pretty pretty darn nice. You know, we're... Uh... <laughs> All things being equal, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're on about five acres with uh, 300 feet of south-facing beach. Looking at the Olympic Peninsula, it's uh, pretty magnificent. I guess. And how's, like, the pandemic been treating the islands? I mean, is it... Uh... Well, the total San Juan County, all of San Juan Islands, which I think is a population of maybe 25,000 year-round, there's uh, 13 people with COVID. That's not bad. That's not bad at all. I think we have the lowest uh, COVID rate in all of Washington. Yeah. And so you uh, have the ferries stopped running? Oh, the ferries are still going. Yeah. I mean, the touristas have been clamoring to get out here and real estate's going crazy because uh people living in seattle and cities like that want to escape they want to escape yeah i mean (laughs) i think the new york suburbs are going crazy on real estate too you know i'm sure bergen county new jersey and all that stuff is going nuts right yeah yeah i would imagine yeah out on the long island yeah it's it's funny it's one of those things where it's it's um People are so talking about, yeah, there's been the emptying out, you know, San Francisco, New York, the high, high, high rent places. But we'll be interested to see what happens once, uh, once, <laughs> whenever that is, we get to start feeling normal again. Well, a lot of corporations have uh, pleasantly discovered that uh, their people working from home are just as effective, if not more, than coming into their office every day. So, I'd hate to be in commercial real estate in Manhattan right now. Yeah, well, there's a lot of discussion about that because people are saying this this feels sort of the same as it felt after 9-11 where everybody said, look, we're leaving the city. Yeah. And the opposite happened, right? More people came, even though certain functions, critical functions left the city for safety purposes. But yeah, more more real estate was built, more more buildings and so on. But yeah, too early to tell, I think. 
Well, I, I personally, I think people will miss coming to the office. I mean, a I lot of people do. A lot of people need it, and uh, they don't want to be with their spouse 24 by 7. <laughs> <laughs> or but the spouse doesn't want to be with them 24 yeah, right, by 7. Right. Right. Well, well, my wife and I each have our own offices in our home, and, and she's a couples therapist. So it's like I live in an emotional growth boarding school. Ah, there you go. Well, we'll get we'll talk about that. Yeah, but see your personal growth as as part of that. But yeah, I I do feel for you know families, younger families with you know two income families, uh, kids in school, they're having to do remote learning. Oh, I mean that's it's something that uh, no one signed up for, and it's it's it has to be extremely extremely stressful. And I think that's I worry that we're sort of at this time as you know we've when you and I are recording this and end of September that you know all the increasing talk about a second wave uh, I know. and a second I know. surge and and I, I'm concerned for you know people that have been working from home for six seven months and quite honestly for most people the experience has been they've been working more and uh, you know sort of the endless round of Zoom meetings and. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I worry what's going to happen. People sort of just hit the wall emotionally yeah. and energy-wise and then look at the second second surge and it's like, hmm, I wonder if the productivity will, will maintain itself. I know. Well, you know, domestic violence has gone way up. Has it? Yeah. 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 Well, and what's your wife seeing relative to, <laughs> as long as we're on that, that, that thread, is uh, what is she seeing in, in her profession? What are people saying about, uh, yeah, not just domestic violence, but yeah, divorce rates, uh, couples breaking up, all of that? Well, there, it's it's really hard if you haven't worked out all your relationship stuff. And you know, she's she's got a system called Weconcile, which is education for couples to help them understand their. Um, partner's emotional wounds that we all developed growing up. And one one of the biggest things about that she's trying to do is help people learn their um, partner's family of origin stuff. So when when their partner gets triggered with something, they can always respond with empathy instead of acrimony. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's that. uh... I'm thinking my own <laughs> my own cases is uh, yeah with my wife is yeah I was I was well how were we all damaged growing up I guess <laughs> oh, yeah. no one no one escapes unscathed I think from that no no and even if you were raised by uh, Ozzy and Harriet you still are going <laughs> to have uh, some emotional wounds <laughs> <laughs> well I can having watched that show I could imagine yeah yeah I, I, I bet <laughs> there's a lot of anger under the surface in that household. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, good. Well, so yeah, jumping back into sales a little bit is, yeah. is yeah. As, as I was thinking about what we're going to talk about today, I was drawn back to this line on your website that I'd seen before, and 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 you say that you've been coaching sellers to master creating trust and emotional connection in conversations with their buyers. Correct. And this really, I think, has been a mission of yours, and. Yeah, I, I want to talk about why this emotional connection is important because I know it it makes some people uncomfortable, and I see increasingly people writing, you know, in the echo chamber of LinkedIn, 
people who supposed sales experts writing about how relationships are unimportant in sales and that it's a myth. And uh, just want to get your take on that. So, you know, so why is this emotional important connection so important? Well, what led me to this was, uh, you know, I was in the sales process business with solution selling and customer centric selling for many years. Mm -hmm. Great and books, classic books. About 20 times over 20 years, my, my VP of sales client would say to me, you know, Mike, my top 20% love solution selling, but the bottom 80% quit using it after two weeks after the workshop. And it finally dawned on me that the reason they quit using it was their buyers were pushing them away. And, and so I guess what I'm saying is top 20% salespeople, and if you think about it, top 20% performers in virtually every profession, whether they're executives or teachers or politicians or whatever, they have an intuitive ability to connect emotionally and build trust. But they do it intuitively, which is why most senior sales executives are so frustrated because they can't teach their people to be as good as they were. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so we realized that the reason that people were quit using the, the bottom 80 percent were quit using solution selling or customer centric selling two weeks after the workshop was the bottom 80% lacks that intuitive ability to connect with strangers quickly. And so what would happen is they would go to their sales process too soon. They'd go to their sales process before their buyer really felt comfortable with them mm -hmm. and, and was willing to open up. And so since they lacked the intuitive ability to connect, they'd get into their discovery questions and all of a sudden, the buyer is throwing Shuts their hands down. up and saying, yeah, you don't know me well enough to ask me all those questions. And so my, my current mission in sales is to help the bottom 80% learn to connect with strangers. And since they don't do it intuitively, we have to give them some kind of a model to follow. And the model is built on story because human beings have been around at least for 200,000 years where they've been uh, using oral language to pass on tribal information and leaders have been using stories to promote or to influence their people to do difficult things that need to be done. Right. And so for salespeople, we give them three types of stories in their toolbox. The first story, and it's not the one they use first, is the story of the organization they work for and why they chose to go to work for that organization. What about it inspired them enough to join up? The second story is their personal career growth story of, you know, when I was in Junior high, I wanted to do this. And mm -hmm. then in high school, I wanted to do that. And that personal growth story, the whole idea of that one is to lead the buyer 
to the emotional conclusions that this person has character. This right. person can take coaching. This person can be responsible when they make a mistake. This person can pick themselves up when they fall down. So it's important for salespeople to be able to have that story in their quiver. They don't normally get to that story until two or three calls in a long sell cycle. The third type of a story, and this is one where they can have many, is we call customer hero stories. And the whole idea is professional people, if you're selling to the enterprise, they are most curious about their peers. So if you're a if you're a CFO and I say, oh, Andy, you're a CFO. Can I share with you a story about another CFO I've been working with? Odds are about 99% you're going to say yes to that story. Exactly. Because people are curious about their peers. So that one-minute customer hero story, we teach salespeople to build and tell. At the end of that 60-second story, the buyer now has been led to some emotional conclusions. One of them might be, gee, this salesperson's 25 years younger than me. However, it sounds like she really understands how hard my job is. And it sounds like she has helped another CFO just like me deal with an issue I haven't figured out how to deal with yet. So I want to know more and I might even have hope for a solution. Mm -hmm. So at the end of that one minute story, when we coach them to say enough about me, what's going on in your world? One of two things happen. If the story was successful, they open up, start talking freely, and all their discovery resistance has been removed. If the story didn't work, they fold their arms and say, what do you want to know? <laughs> right? It's binary. It's one of the two. Yeah, yeah. And well, so, if, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it's, it's, you know, it's fascinating because, and I think we had talked about it before, but in in line with with this again the same sort of growing sentiment i see in the echo chamber about relationships aren't important is you get the same thing as that look especially in today's modern SaaS model is we they train sdrs as no small talk i know right and right. and this thing that is scientifically proven to help you build rapport with someone else is being coached out of people well, and so you don't even have the chance. Yeah, people are being trained not even to, to tell the story. Well, developing rapport and telling stories might be two different things. When I first became a sales trainer for Xerox in 1976, they actually said to me, Mike, we can teach salespeople to be competent. We can teach them to great, give great presentations and write great letters and have conversations and handle objections and stuff, but you can't teach rapport. They actually said to me, rapport is chemistry, and the chemistry between every two human beings is unique. And exactly. I, took, I took that as parental knowledge until 2008 when I started to learn about story, and they were putting people in MRI machines and then introducing the anticipation of a story while they're in there. And, and you could watch the critical left brain shut down and the right brain open up. And one of the key things about stories is you have to get permission to tell the story. 
No stranger is going to allow some other person to come up and just start to spew a story. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're talking about permission selling. And ideally, our buyer gives the seller permission to guide them through their buy cycle. And if the seller does a great job of guiding them through their buy cycle, they'll never have to close. Yes. <laughs> but what seems to be the issue that I see increasingly, especially again, especially in sort of the, the world we live in today, is that you know, the focus is, is much more transactional, even in more complex deals. And, and so the idea is it's always about yeah, persuading someone to get to the point where we can close as opposed to, as you're using, guiding on a journey. Yeah, guiding. Yeah, and and this idea of, of you know the importance of the human interaction in there, which in we can call it a connection, we can call it a relationship, whatever. Right, is immutable, and I just find it curious that that people are trying to say, yeah, it's just not important, and, and <laughs> I feel like you know, people just fundamentally misunderstand what a relationship is because right, it's not a friendship. A relationship no. is is if you look at the definition, it's how are two or more things connected? Right. So right. just by virtue of selling to someone, you are in a relationship. That doesn't mean a friendship. And I know it makes people feel uncomfortable. I think it people makes you feel uncomfortable, the ones you talk about that don't have the intuitive uh, toolkit to build that rapport. Right. Right. And, and most people don't. And uh, it's not just the bottom 80% of salespeople that struggle with connecting, it's the bottom 20% of humanity in virtually mm-hmm. every profession. If you look at the most successful people and the leaders, they have this ability to connect authentically and build trust quickly with strangers. Yeah, I think that was the whole basis of my career. Because <laughs> yeah. I was selling complex technical products and I was not a you know, technical trained person. Neither was but, I. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. yeah, it's all really large things. They're yeah. large enterprises. Uh, and I always felt that the real key to success was the connections, the relationships, whatever you want to call them, that, that I made with the people that were going to buy from me. And they trusted you. People won't admit a problem to somebody they don't trust, much less buy from somebody they don't trust. Well, and so getting into that, as we all know, those expressions, you know, people buy from people they know, like, and trust. So I was reading, again, something this week on LinkedIn. Someone said, yes, you don't need to be likable as a salesperson in order to get someone's business. And I think, you know, in the absolute sense, that's true. I mean, you and I, yeah. I'm sure, have both in our career, we've known people who are huge jerks of one deals. Um, yep, yep. <laughs> but my point is, what's it cost you to be likable? And you know, when you look at, I don't know, my perspective is, if I ask somebody, okay, Mike, on your last deal, what was your margin of victory? I mean, how much did you win by? And, well, first of all, you can't quantify it, right? Right. <laughs> but I think if you can't quantify it, then you have to assume you won by the thinnest of margins. And if that's the case, why not do the things that have no costs that will make that 1% difference. And if that's being likable or go down a list of things, uh, why wouldn't you do that? I know. I know. But 
I don't know. The, the whole idea of manipulation and pressure is a, a big turnoff for me. And I've always prided myself on being able to, well, one thing over, over the years, virtually most of the companies I worked with as a consultant and a trainer, they're obsessed with their competition. You know, who else are we competing with and trying to position themselves against competitors? Mm. And personally, my take has always been I've never cared or thought about any competition because (laughs) as long as my buyer, I believe my buyer is telling me the truth and being straight with me, I'm going to continue in that sell cycle. And as soon as I think, they're manipulating me or trying mm-hmm. to get a, a proposal out of me so they can buy from the one they want to buy from. As soon as I feel that they are not trustworthy to me, I'm gone. Yeah. I learned that lesson the hard way. Yeah. I mean, I, I got used on a big deal that, yeah. Yeah. In retrospect, and this was you know, much earlier in my career, but I, it was a great lesson to learn because it was a, it was a big deal with a prestigious company. And yeah. Well, we yeah, got we, we got, got we got fooled because we were a substantially better product, and it just didn't matter <laughs> because it, it, they yeah. were going to use this other company and they were leveraging us for price. Right, right. Well, in most of these corporate deals over that we and you and I have sold in the same world, their corporate rules require that they get three solid bids. Mm-hmm. So that means two of them are being manipulated. So they can buy from the one they want to buy from. But I'm I'm with you on the competition thing. So I I yeah. never focus on the competition, and I was uh, <laughs> I take inspiration from one of my childhood heroes, Vince Lombardi, who was coach of the Green Bay Packers as I was growing up. Who, yeah, you know, he got criticized for having this conservative offensive playbook, and yeah, you know, he just they could execute it so well. He was like, I'm not concerned about the competition. They have to be concerned about me. Right. Right. Yeah. And I always want to take that approach as, yeah, I'm not worried about the other guy. They, I want to make them worried about me. Yeah. I've been preaching to salespeople for years. The worst thing you can do is go the distance on a three, six or nine month sales cycle and lose. If you yep. were, if you're working for me, I'd rather you after one or two calls come to see me and say, Mike, I think they're using us. I want to pull a plug. Well, and I would say the even worse thing is to work a three, six, or nine month deal and have it go to no decision. Right. Which to me, that's, which that's actually the, the biggest <laughs> sin of all. It is, and that's the it's been the number one competitor over the years yes. is no decision over any single competitor, and that means to me they didn't really have a solid vision of a solution. Yep. Which starts with poor discovery. Poor discovery, poor, poor qualification, yep. poor needs analysis. Yeah. All things you'd need to put together this vision yeah. for the buyer. Right. So one thing we've been playing with uh, lately is saying to a buyer, would you like to see a list of what our other CMOs are doing with our offering? Right. So mm-hmm. or whatever their job title is. And most people right. will say yes. And then I would say to you, for each of these usage statements, I want you to give me one of three responses. Either I wish I could say that, <laughs> I can say that today, or I don't care about that. 
So, for instance, uh, if I uh, if I uh, said to you, other one, one of my marketing clients is saying we now know how to get qualified leads out of trade shows. Right. So the person I'm talking to, ideally, would say, "I wish I could say that." And if he says, "I wish I could say that," then I can say, "Would you like to hear the story?" of my customer who says that. Hmm. He's not going to deny that story. And now I'm starting with a vision. Well, and also way more effective than like a scripted list of discovery questions. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 right, yeah. And so after I tell him the story of the other person, then I go back to him and say, so tell me what's preventing you from being able to say this. And now I get into discovery. This discovery resistance is gone because he's heard a story of how one of his peers has already been smart enough to figure this out. And he's got hope for a solution. And he believes that I understand how hard his job is. And so they're, they're open for real discovery. Well, I think that discovery resistance, I, I term that really as persuasion resistance, because I think when sellers, my belief is when sellers get into the scripted discovery questions that just seem a little yeah. too pat, is customer feels like they're being guided. Right. And, yeah. well, and shepherded in a certain direction, and the barriers go up. Right. Well, it's really the resistance of feeling sold. Human beings hate to feel sold. And, and I tell people, as soon as you use a word or a phrase that reminds them of a previous encounter with a salesperson that went bad, you're toast. <laughs> it's true. Right? Interesting. Hadn't thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah, you bring back the, the psychological scarring, the triggering. And we all have it. 100% of the population has uh, psychological scars from encounters with salespeople where they felt pushed or manipulated or pressured into doing something they didn't want to do. Interesting. Well, I mean, so, but we have today, though, in large part, a sales process, certainly in subscription-based services, is that's that is starts with persuasion as sort of the first the first sales motion. Will you take a meeting with an AE? Will you take a meeting? Will you will you do a demo? Well, God, I hate leading with demos, but um, can I tell you about another little project I'm working on with one of my clients where we're trying to teach their website to do the need qualification before they pass it to the salesperson or the AE. Sure, go ahead. So they come, to, they come to your website, and first thing you do is you ask your web visitor to identify with one of multiple buyer personas. And the only buyer personas that should be on my website are buyer personas where I already have a success story. So... They might go through and say CEO, CMO, VP of sales, et cetera, and they, they check CMO. Mm -hmm. So the next screen comes up with, would you rather see what other CMOs are doing with our offering, or would you rather see what problems other CMOs have been able to solve? And we find that some people would rather go with what are they doing. Other people would rather start with a problem. So you give them a choice. So if, you, if they say, well, I want to see what problems other CMOs have been able to solve, I, I give them three problems 
So for instance, a CMO, it might be the leads we send to our sales force fall into a black hole. Our success stories on our website make our product a hero. We are not getting a return on our enormous investment in trade shows. And then mm-hmm. it says, indicate which one you're curious about. And if you check them all, then you can hear them all. Uh, if, if you said, I want to hear what other people are doing, then I give them a menu choice of three. The leads we send to our sales force are for targeted buyers who are curious how we have helped their peer or their competitor solve a problem. Second one, we know how to get qualified leads out of trade shows. Third one, we are able to harvest successful usage of our product stories from our happy customers and clients. And again, indicate which ones you're curious about. Mm -hmm. And so everyone that they're curious about, they check it. Then the system says, would you like to see or hear the story about that client? And ideally, I'd have a 60-second first-person video um, customer hero story where the customer is actually telling their story. That's the ultimate. But you could also have, you know, a written story as long as it's, it's clean and succinct. And those stories make the emotional connection. They establish trust, competence, and credibility. They reduce discovery resistance, and they create a vision of hope and success for the buyer, and and they haven't met a human being yet. And so then, at the end of each story, depending on how many of them they want, if your product is simple, we could go straight to purchasing options, offer them purchasing options. There's so many things today that don't need a salesperson to sell them. Right. Right. So if it's a simple product, you know, would you like to see some purchasing options? Maybe you give them a discount code. If it's a complex product, the system comes back and says, using Calendly, would you like to schedule a 15 minute conversation with one of our representatives to learn more? And so this, if they say yes, and they go to Calendly and, uh, and schedule with you, their discovery resistance is pretty much already gone because they related so well to the peer story that your website gave them. I mean, in that case, you could also use tools like Qualified or Drift, uh, you know, sort of through chat to actually engage with the person in real time. If you were there in real time, absolutely. Yeah. 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 But at that point, if, if they've if they've really gone through one of my customer hero stories and they want to talk to a human, well, if I'm a salesperson, I want that. Oh, yeah. I'd, I'd I'm all that over one. that. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah. I'd make sure my name pops up first in the round robin. Yeah. Well, you know, if, if even today, if you go into most organizations, the marketing department thinks the salespeople are weak, they're they're not following up on leads they sent them. And the salespeople think the marketing department, the leads they sent them, are, you know, could be used as toilet paper. And uh, the touch point between sales and marketing seems to be, what's your definition of a qualified lead? And I, I have found the best way to integrate marketing with sales is where the VP of sales 
and the VP of marketing both agree to the same definition of a qualified lead. Which in this case would be? So this, the definition of a qualified lead would be a defined targeted buyer, you know, some job title we know we want to sell to, right. is curious how we help their peer or their competitor make money, save money, achieve a goal, or solve a problem. There's, like not, a, there's not a salesman in the world that wouldn't jump on that lead. Yeah. Well, I love the four things. Yeah, make, make money, save money. Achieve a goal or solve a achieve, problem. Another, achieve an outcome, solve a problem, yeah. With your product. In other yeah. words, how we helped their peer or competitor. Right. Yeah. Well, and how we how we do it is really the, the critical part there for me. It's it's you know, when I look at what passes for qualification oftentimes these days, it's always about well, we're qualifying somebody because they, they want to do something like what we do, as opposed to they want to use our product to make this happen. They want to do they want they need exactly what we're offering. And people don't qualify to that. They because don't. it's it's gonna cost them something in their pipeline. Everybody's so obsessed with the size of their pipeline. Right, right. More than yeah. they're obsessed with winning. Right, right. Yeah, and, and they're being judged by the size of their pipeline. And uh, I mean, so much bad sales behavior out there is caused by managers who are forcing salespeople to push them to try and buy before they're ready. <laughs> no disagreement with that at all. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, yeah. I, mean, I was having this conversation with somebody yesterday and and on another somebody else's podcast and I say yeah the issue is not sellers <laughs> the issue is leadership and management right right yeah well i've been saying for years that i don't think salespeople should do forecasts i think salespeople should be building enough qualified pipeline to make their number first line manager should be grading that pipeline and the first line manager should do the forecast because that forces the first line manager to really get into, are these people going to likely to buy from us or not? Well, we're in this scenario, again, with more subscription-based services that, you know, in the SaaS world, most companies are operating like a 20% win rate off of most qualified opportunities. Wow. And it's, yeah. But they're so proficient, if you will, at, Top of funnel activities that, and they know their conversion rates down cold. Is it's like, well, we really don't grow the business. We all we have to do is grow the top of the funnel, and it flows through, right? We sort of play the odds. Yeah, but it's it's sort of it's expensive. <laughs> it's expensive. And it's not really selling. It's just playing the odds. So we can do we can have these bad behaviors, but it's like, okay, well, what are you what are you really teaching your salespeople if you lose four out of five opportunities? I know, I know. Although, you know, baseball players, they'd be happy to hit 300, right? <laughs> sure. But <laughs> over your career, what do you think your win rate was? My personal win rate? Yeah. On the ones that I stayed in and didn't walk away from? Yeah. 90%. Yeah. I mean, I operated always with, again, I wasn't selling for the most, not always. Sometimes we had subscription services, but I mean, selling yeah, things that sold and denominated in the millions of dollars. But um yeah, I mean, I was because I won't. Got stay. to that point, you're going. Yeah, I don't want to stay if I don't believe they're going to buy from me. So well, and we don't have in our processes these days, for most part, the serve uh, nerve, if you will, to make those decisions because again, the incentives are 
not even incentives. It's it's the measurement is size of pipeline. Well, and then the pipeline milestones are typically so vendor or salesperson oriented. What I what I've been trying to do with my clients is to get them to put buyer oriented pipeline milestones. So, for instance, uh, when they go from not looking to curious about a peer or a competitor, that's a step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then when we say, tell me more, they open up and they allow themselves to be tended. That's okay. So now they're giving us a little more trust. And then the buyer shares their constraints, uh, political issues, things they're going to have to deal with. That's again, they're demonstrating trust because they want us to win and they want us to help them win in their organization. And then the buyer introduces us to all key players. That's another huge victory. Then the buyers agree that they've had satisfactory proof that our offering will meet their vision. That's huge. Mm -hmm. And then the buyer will sit down and work the value numbers with us so we can go to their CFO together and show the potential. So these are all milestones where the buyer is taking the next step. Well, and they also are milestones in actually qualifying the account. And this right. is, and so what I find uh, sort of this disconnect when I talk to sales leaders today is like, you're calling this a, a qualified opportunity, but you haven't even touched on three or four of those things you just mentioned, especially the right. last one, which is, right. you know, for me, I don't have a qualified opportunity until that internal business case is done and signed off on. Right, right. Because at that point, Prior to that, they haven't made the commitment that they're going to move forward. Right, right. Well, and then you get the uh, situation where you've got a highly complex product where the salespeople are all engineers because the product's so complex. Right. And when, when the engineer salespeople call on the engineer users, they have a wonderful time. But then neither one of them know how to talk to the CFO. Yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. yeah. The engineer seller or the engineer buyer don't know how to deal with the CFO. Well, and there's another layer there, too, that's, that I find interesting, is, and especially when we talk about the size of stakeholder groups that are involved in, in decision-making these days, is that, and I find this, again, this part missing from most of the sales teams I work with, is, is that they only ask the individual stakeholder about what this will do for the company, but they never ask, well, what will this mean for you personally? Personally, yeah. And and again, there's established research on this dating back to the 50s that you know that that people in a decision-making environment consider both. They do. And for the most part, yeah, they won't share that with their salesperson. Yeah. Well, I, I tell people, I says, when you think about it. You really don't have, if you have 10 stakeholders, you really have 20. Right. And if you're not saying, look, as part of my my plan, I'm addressing all 20 of those, then you're going to miss out. And I think this gets back to even what you're talking about. This, you know, oftentimes, the top 20 are more intuitively tuned into, attuned right. to this fact that, that, yeah, everybody operates on two levels. And yet... The vast, vast majority of what we see you know, in terms of sales training and so on, it's only about the company side. But we're, right. we're in a human business with people making these these choices and decisions. Yep. Yep. So 
question for you is, is so, yeah, you've been doing this for a long time. You wrote a couple of classic sales books, which uh, I enjoyed reading back when they first came out. Um, and, and I'm thinking, okay, you know, when you look back is, and you think about your experiences is, and you, you sort of mentioned, like, I think even on your website that you're, what, 90% retired? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're still pretty active yeah. for somebody that's 90% retired. But um, what are the big things you think, you know, before you make it to 100% retired, what are, what are the big things you st- think still need to change that you're working to change in sales? Yeah, well, the number one thing for uh, companies selling Productivity improvement solutions to the enterprise. The number one thing that still has to change is product marketing. I think product marketing needs to die and be replaced by customer usage marketing. Hmm. So, for instance, when I first joined Xerox Computer Services in 1972, we were selling first generation MRP systems. Right. All new employees had to go through product school, they called it. And it was really six weeks of learning to demo all the applications. And you couldn't graduate until you could demo all the applications. Mm-hmm. Yep. That now, for me, I was, young, I was young, out of college. So they, luckily for me, they put me on the help desk. But all these salespeople they had hired from IBM who were in their mid-30s to early 40s, They'd go out and after six weeks of product training, go on a sales call and, and all they know how to do is offer, do a demo. So they say, would you like to see a demo? When I finally went into sales two years later, having installed an MRP system for, for a materials manager, I'd go cold call. I'd go to the receptionist and say, I'm Mike Bosworth with Xerox Computer Services. I'd like to speak with your materials manager. 80% of the time they'd come out and when they did come out, I'd see them look at me and then they'd look at their watch because I was 28 years old and he was 48 years old. And he thought, ah, <laughs> oh, shit, I now I've got to be polite to this young guy for the next 15 who, minutes. Who knows before, nothing, right? Who knows nothing before I get rid of him. But what I did intuitively back then, and now I've been now trying to codify is I, I confirmed the job title. I'd say, so you're the materials manager here? And he'd say, yep. And I would say, can I share a quick story with you about another materials manager less than a mile from here who's been able to eliminate his shortages? No, no materials manager I co-called ever turned down that story. And I tell him a 60-second story mm-hmm. and then say, but enough about me. What's going on here? And they'd say, you want to come in and look around? In other words, my 60-second story eliminated all the doubt, all the he's too young, all the he Mm -hmm. doesn't know anything about it. And it created enough credibility and hope for a solution that they took me in. And then I did the next 45 minutes of discovery walking through his plant with him. And I sold more in my first five months on quota than anybody in the history of the company sold in a full year using that story, that customer hero story about another materials manager. I filled my pipeline with that one story. Right. Oh, it's genius. And it's so yeah. simple. Yeah. And it accomplishes things at so many levels. It is, 
uh, a credibility builder for you because you said yeah. you had this age differentiation. Yep. You demonstrate some business acumen. Yeah. Um, you start making that personal connection because they were saying, "Oh, look, this oh, this guy yeah. is worth worth some of my time," which is for me the first barrier you have to get over. Um, and then by flipping it to them and saying, "So, what's on your mind?" Yeah, you've they've suddenly given you permission, as you said before, is to to ask that question. They've given me permission to facilitate their bicycle, and they yep. and they usually quickly admit pain they'll say well jesus i've been having terrible shortage problems because the the guy in the story had a terrible shortage um shortage Mm -hmm. problem but we talked about how we gave him the ability to fix that problem and you know i've said for years that a suspect turns into a prospect when they trust the salesperson enough to admit pain to that salesperson yeah well, I use a similar term, but instead of admitting pain, but it's just to, to share, sort of, I don't, I don't call it necessarily proprietary, but I use that term, but not confidential information, but to share, yeah, proprietary information about the company, yeah, that they're, we're opening up, something's yeah, happening here. Yeah, yeah. It's a demonstration of trust. And back to what we are talking about originally is that if you don't make that connection on the human level with somebody, if you don't think that's important, uh, you won't have that trust. You won't have them open up to you. And yeah, you may succeed selling something transactional. Right. But if it has complexity to it, you have to go through that step. So I think the last question I ask you in the time that we have is is because it relates to this whole idea of storytelling and your experience, which mirrored mine to a certain degree, is, is you know, sellers today, and it's been true forever, but it's it's still true, and perhaps more painfully obvious is that there's lack business acumen, right? And certainly right. customers report this as you know, the reason we don't find value dealing with the salesperson is they don't know enough about business to be able to provide insights or stories that you talked about. How do we how do we close that gap? Because yeah, look at my own experience. I was really fortunate. In my first job out of school, I was selling yeah, mini computer systems that were anything but mini compared to today. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Only filled yeah. one room worth of equipment. They were but, they were for, <laughs> but they were for accounting applications. Right. So I sell into small and mid-sized businesses. And I learned how business operates because that was my job. Right. Because I was selling all the modules for general right. accounting and yeah. plus cost accounting. And I I focused on the construction business, so I understood job cost accounting and so on. Yeah. Um, I learned it. And so it's that basis has stood me in great stead throughout my entire career because I, I understood how business operated. How do we how do we get this? Did you have to sellers? did you have to learn those questions yourself or did your company teach you those discovery questions? Basically I learned them myself by talking to the customers. Exactly right. Me. Exactly right. So salespeople shouldn't be making up their own stories and they shouldn't be making up their own discovery questions. We need a strong customer usage marketing department teaching salespeople, oh, if you're calling on the cost accounting manager, the odds are he or she is struggling with A, B, and C. Here are the intelligent discovery questions for you to ask. Yeah. We have, that was so, the whole idea with solution selling is we had the smartest people in the company write the discovery questions, both to diagnose and to create the vision of the solution. The reason that the bottom 80% quit using it 
is they went to those discovery questions before the buyer had connected with them and believed that they were competent and trustworthy and authentic. Right. They went to them too soon and the buyer went, whoa, you don't know me well enough to ask me all those questions. But the questions were solid. Yeah. No, this is, and this is what happens, unfortunately, more often than not these days. Right. Is yeah. Because you know, we've got our entry-level sellers on metrics that prize quantity over quality for the most part. Right. Yeah. Even though everybody gives lip service to the fact they don't, they still fundamentally do. They sure and, do. <laughs> and if that's the case, what do you expect people to do? Right. So, right. Yeah. Well, very interesting. Well, Mike, as always, just an incredible pleasure to talk with you. And, um, yeah, if people want to connect with you, how can they do that? MikeBosworth.com. We'll get them to uh, a website that they can send me an email. I'm, got, I'm on LinkedIn. Yep. And uh, I have a Mike Bosworth Leadership uh, page on Facebook. So I'm really not hard to find. Even though you're 90% retired. Right. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm coaching my channel and I'm doing webinars and I'm having right. fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like it. Yeah. And staying healthy, which is important. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Mike, look forward to doing it again before too long. Thank you, Andy. It's always a pleasure. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm ever so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank my guest, Mike Bosworth, for sharing his wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd certainly appreciate that. So thank you for your help, and thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs>